we would be honored if you would join us. Alright everyone, welcome to another exciting episode of Dungeon Crawlers, where if everything is timed right, you just listened to the most epic show ever with Alton, Krebs, myself, and author Michael Haspel talking about Kroll. You know, and because we were talking about Kroll, we talked about monsters and villains and creatures that you encounter and why they're important to the story. That is what we're talking about tonight because no hero can exist without the struggle of fighting monsters to reach the big bad villain. Because a story would just be boring if, you know, Frodo just walked across the plains, walked up to the top of Mount Doom, and had no creatures he had to face. It would just be a really boring story. Every adventure that you play in D&D or other role-playing games would just not be that fun if you had, you know, you decided at the tavern to go fight the big boss and you just strolled down the block, went through the mountains with ease, took a drink at the nearest pond, and then there the big bad boss was. We've talked about villains, but the monsters, why are they important in your game, your stories, and everything else? So, now that I have gone on my little uh, diatribe, and let's, let's actually get into the meat and bones of, of the actual episode. Why are monsters important? Who wants to jump in first? Meat and bones, Dan. Meat and bones. Yes. The uh, I, I mean, but that's that's really kind of the thing about it, right? Is that monsters, in the most fundamental sense, are that uh, those nutrients that allow the story to progress. Um, not every monster has to be a big bad evil guy, nor does every monster have to be, you know, your level zero rat or spider sitting in the bottom of the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, conflict at the most fundamental level is is the thing that enables us to overcome those obstacles to progress our own story and to move on to the next step. With that being the case, I think that there's a lot more underneath the surface that if we really understand kind of what goes into monsters and why they are important to our stories, specific monsters, right? Um, then I think that it enables us to be better writers, uh, better storytellers, better game masters. Um, but in a lot of ways, it also helps us to kind of put our own situations into perspective. Yeah. Well, and the nice thing about monsters, per se, uh, you can they don't have to be your traditional monsters. You can do unique twists and turns with them. Uh, in the Dritt series, there is a... Uh, a, a story of where Dritz finds a goblin that is actually good. He's not evil like the rest of the goblin kin. And it's sometimes you can put a twist on those. Um, and an instance that I've used is, you know, everyone sees Cobalt as worthless cannon, cannon fodder. You know, you just rip through them and they give you a little bit of XP. And no big deal. Um, I used a, a Cobalt in an adventure I had a kobold that was guarding this bridge. He had a massive uh, pole arm, and you know, my my players like it's a kobold. We we can take this thing, and they all dismount. They get off their horses. They go to walk, and one of the guys is like, "Well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's a kobold. Why are we all going after it? Who who's gonna t- who, who's gonna deal with the kobold?" They drew straws. One guy lost. He goes up there. Not really worrying about anything. He goes up there and then gets... He dies instantly. 
Yeah, I, I rolled a 20. <laughs> However, what they didn't know is the kobold had a belt of giant strength on. Yeah. You know, a nice twist. And, you know, they're pretty low-level characters at this point, but it was still something that they weren't expecting. You know, and instead of talking to the kobold or trying to negotiate, they're just, up. Oh, it's kobold, let's kill it. And they learn very, very quickly after that to not make assumptions with kobolds, which was kind of fun to do. Um, so you can do those weird twists with, with monsters, but... I mean, you, you can't be an epic level hero by the time you face the big baddie unless you kind of grind through some of those monsters at times. You know, uh, go ahead, Alton. Well, I was just going to ask you, Krebs. Uh, you know, I think Dan brought up a pretty cool uh, villain or monster that he's run into before. Has there been a monster that's kind of stood out to you in your adventures, whether that's a story that you've read or participated in or a game that you've come, in, come across? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, th and thank you for asking. Uh, yeah. I, oh, 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 oh. Uh, actually, one of one of my I, I love villains in stories and it's we've talked about this in previous episodes and and Dan just touched on it a moment ago as well, um, where heroes are incapable of being heroes without opposition. There has to be opposition or there is no it, does it matter if. Uh, Kal-El is Clark Kent and Superman if there's no, no if there's no Lex Luthor if there's no Doomsday if there's no if there's no opposition if it was just about an alien being a journalist then that would be the Washington Post that would no I'm joking uh, if it were if we're just about an alien being a journalist that wouldn't be a very interesting story it doesn't matter that he has super strength or laser eyes or x-ray vision or flight or super speed it doesn't matter because there's no opposition and so i like using the opposition to bring to bring out the character in characters so tell, tell us a little more about that like what what are some of the tools that you've run into or that you consider as you're creating monsters or villains for your heroes i like uh, I, I don't know if i have a set number of categories for villains, but I do have a few that that as I look back retrospectively, I put them, I lump them into different groups. There, there are what we might call ads in D and D, uh, or minions. I should probably say minions in D and D, where the whole purpose of them is to create a temporary, low barrier to entry type obstacle um, that builds up the experience points of the of the player, and it adds a small amount of jeopardy. If you're playing a zombie apocalypse game like I do, Dead Rain, then you you put a you put a couple walkers, which are very simple Zeds to kill, um, but they still pose a threat. There is a threat that is there. Jeopardy is always important, right? Uh, and if you put ten of them there, well, now you've just exponentially, not multiplicatively, but exponentially increased the threat. If you put forty of them there, the 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 team needs to run. If they don't have an explosive or something, they got to go. So even though these are just minions, if you put enough of them in place, you uh, exponentially increase the jeopardy. But you can put enough of them there to pose a challenge, the right level of challenge, and it gives the players an experience opportunity. So I consider those opportunities to like adjust the jeopardy or to adjust the character experience. Yeah. The next kind of category would have to be the major threats, where you have a character that's obviously built, 
to fight the characters for a, a slightly protracted period of time, maybe a lengthy battle round or maybe a couple of encounters. But my all-time favorite villains, my all-time favorite ones, are the ones that are meant to be there for the long haul. And they make appearances at the least convenient moments. And I, I'm very proud of this. I, I, had, um, I had a Star Wars game that I was running. And this was at the time where the rule of two was um, sort of the zeitgeist of Star Wars mythology. Uh, and I had purposely designed my campaign around a um, sort of, for lack of a better term, rogue Sith master who was purposely recruiting several apprentices as an enclave. And these other Jedi that were spread across the galaxy, uh, the Force was uniting them to bring balance. The Force was uniting them through visions of this terrible threat that was coming and, and was impending. And so we, I had united the players were the Jedi that were united, and they were uh, fighting this multiplicity of Sith across the galaxy that shouldn't have existed in the first place. So that was a fun one. And then of course it was building up to the ultimate boss, the Sith Lord itself. The other, the other creature that I'm very proud of is I, I created uh, in my zombie apocalypse, there was a villain known as the man in white. And in this particular version of the system, uh, th there are two major versions of the dead rain system. There's, there's one that I call sort of like the, the contemporary system, which is um, it's modern day, it's scientifically based, but people don't know what causes the zombification, blah, blah, blah. But it's all it's all science and violence. But the original version of Dead Rain, which was released as a primer in a subscription called The Rifter, um, it was what I call the ethereal version. It's actually based on psionic energy and the presence of um, an entity that is actually reaching out with tendrils of his influence and reanimating the dead so that he can kill the living, thus siphoning their life force to then build up his own energy so that he can actually invade the, or the planet himself. So, so you have like one that's magic less and one that's magic and psionic filled. And in that version, I have the man in white, which was sort of like the, the top general of the entity. And because of that, he retained several many human characteristics with all the benefits of being the undead. And uh, and I and I did little things that would build a sense of fear and dread in the players. One of the players was a magic-wielding player. And so the first time the man in white appeared, I slipped messages to this magic wielder that said, for reasons you cannot explain, you smell the saccharine, the, the overly sweet, uh, fragrance of rotten strawberries. And that just became like the hint. He was like, what is that? And then the man in white appeared. They had this conflict. And any time from there on out, if I said, like, he would actually ask me, he's like, do I smell rotten strawberries? Like that just became like this, this feeling of There's dread. The calling card. Yeah, yeah. The calling card. Right. And, and this character did awesome, terrible things to the players and created this sense of dread. So, so you have the minions, which are just there to adjust level of jeopardy and give XP. You have the major threats, which are there to really challenge your players. But in the ultimate scheme of things, they're not really meant to kill your players. They can, they're not meant to, they're just meant to pose a real challenge to really feel something, you know, so the players feel some dread and jeopardy. But then there's the long haul villains. And those are the ones that you are afraid are actually going to kill your character and you can't stop them. Well, and the nice thing about some of those lower level ones is not only are they there to kind of 
bring deliver that dread and give your character something to fight to you know level up uh but they're also a good opportunity to use for distraction to move them away absolutely from the main goal of said villain i mean i can't tell you the number of books that i've read where you know the main the hero of the story is chasing down this uh rabbit hole while the actual villain is circling around and manipulating all these other things you know eventually he catches on but he's gone down all these different wrong turns until finally he's like oh my gosh it's that person and and a lot of times your villains can be hiding in plain sight but it's because of these smaller lower level characters minions and monsters you can do that type of manipulation those those type of stories are fun uh because more often than not your player or you as a reader just go like holy crap that was such a great left turn um (laughs) now this is awesome you know and, and it's another way to get your players or even you as a reader to buy in you know because now they're invested because they've chase down all these trails they've been running alongside the main character of your book or you know your characters are literally running down the trails running into dead ends they're just like what the heck is going on someone's pulling all these strings but we can't figure out who it is and then they find the one clue that's like oh my gosh you know like the the rotten strawberries you know to the point like rotten strawberries nope okay we're good move forward uh, type thing and those are the things that really entice a story and make it fun you know and yes monsters can kind of be that mundane oh man i gotta i gotta plow through another thing but sometimes they could be pivotal to the story you know mm-hmm. they could have information and then if your your players kill the you know that creature they lose out on a key piece of information they could have caught if they would have you know knock the guy out and question him instead of killing him. Sometimes I like doing that because yeah, that makes the quest harder for him. So I, 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 uh, you know, I hadn't gotten to talk to you guys about this yet, but, uh, I've been thinking about offering to run curse of Strahd, uh, for the channel. Maybe we get some sessions recorded and release them over the month of October or something. Um, but, you're, you've both hit on a number of the key points that I absolutely love about running Curse of Strahd. Um, because, uh, surprise, right? Strahd, not so great a guy. Uh, he's on the cover. His name's all over the thing. There's a reason. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's just... Uh, um, my experience has been that in campaigns in which you do have a very strong top-down design, you usually have an extremely strong villain. So uh, when we talk about general design for games, there are uh, basically two methodologies. This is very generalized, of course. You have bottom-up methodology, which is saying, I have a number of mechanics that I want to put in. There are things that I want to have my players experience, and I start from there and work up. The other is a top-down design, which is to say I have a general story, ideas, uh, critical pieces that I'm putting into play that around which I want to build my content and build my adventure. And Curse of Strahd uh, started, you know, ooh, 30 years ago now uh, as Ravenloft, just a single castle that the yeah. group of 
uh, friends got together and played every Halloween, right? Um, yeah. But the central the central idea was that um, in original D and D, and it's carried through a lot of the editions too. Most vampires are just like these low level, nothing weakling monsters. Um, and uh, Laura Hickman, uh, Trace Hickman's wife, um, wanted to create a gentleman vampire, right? To bring everybody back to the glory days of Dracula, Nosferatu, etc. Um, and uh, so Curse of Strahd is a campaign in which if you really understand the villains that are at play in the story, it does not matter what your players do, what path they go down. There is always new, cool, and interesting content just around the corner that will help to bring them to a satisfying conclusion, either before they get to the boss fight or at the boss fight itself. You know, the one thing I love about Ravenloft has nothing to do with Ravenloft. It has everything to do with the fact that a single character from Dragonlance somehow ended up in Ravenloft. Uh, Lord Soth from the Dragonlance series, uh, TSR mo- moved him over to uh, to the, to Ravenloft. I love that character. I love that character in Dragonlance, and for that character to exist in in Ravenloft, I don't know if it ex- he exists in the new text, but I, you know, having a Death Knight roaming around uh, that is cursed by the gods is just awesome. I'm sorry. So, what do you uh, love about Soth? What makes him a compelling villain to you? So Soth is a compelling villain is very simply, he's a cursed individual because of poor choices on his own. You know, instead of choosing to remain with his wife and child, uh, or no, excuse me. Let me rephrase that. Instead of choosing, you know, he, he made some mistakes. He, you know, he, he committed adultery on his wife and his child. And instead of choosing them and to go off, you know, because he, he begged for forgiveness from the gods. And the gods said, hey, this cataclysm is coming. If you go to the king priest and tell him and prevent this from happening, which you can, you will be forgiven. But you will die. And so he charges off. And then these women manipulate him into believing his wife is unfaithful. He turns around, goes back, pretty much kills his wife and child. And then the cataclysm happens and he's doomed forever. And I like that story uh, because it shows that people are fallible. I mean, he made a bad choice, you know, much like jo- you know, the Joker, um, the killing story, uh, yeah, the killing joke, excuse me. You know, it starts off just one bad day. It's all it takes to make a villain. And I love that because that's the same component here with Law. Or Sloth, he had a bad day. He made a bad choice, and it condemned him forever. And not only that, he's just, he's all this all-powerful undead knight. And he is forever tortured daily about his misdeeds. And that's just like, what would you do in that instant? You can't kill yourself. You're stuck in this place. So, yeah. I, I just think it. The character's cool, and not only that, he can go toe to toe with you know with Strahd, and that's pretty epic too. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know the the power of the villain is a beautiful thing because yeah. um, I think I think we have to be careful because not every antagonist is a villain. 
Correct. And 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 like my I think my favorite I think my favorite exemplar of an antagonist or we could even say villain just for right this moment um is Darth Vader. Darth Vader from if you take the if you look at the whole story arc uh well let, let's start with the original trilogy. Um Darth Vader in the original trilogy is this terrible imposing uh shadowy form mm -hmm. that has purpose and drive a mission um also has a master which makes you fear the master more because yeah. first we get to see the terror of of vader uh in a new hope uh it was it was such that you know audiences at the chinese man theater when they saw a new hope for the first time that was before it's called a new hope mind you but when they saw it for the first time uh he enters you know he enters tentative four behind the stormtroopers he comes out of the mist and the audience physically hissed at him i found footage of the of the test audience that watched it at the man theater mm -hmm. and they actually like booed and hissed at the screen and they had this is the first time the world had seen vader and uh we moved to empire strikes back and there's this little hint that there is a master pulling his strings which makes you fear him and then in return of the jedi we see the true power of the emperor as it was displayed at the time. Yeah. And then of course, and here's where I'm going with this, Vader's been this horrifying force in the trilogy until the very end when there's an opportunity for redemption and the acts of the hero and having conversation instead of combat leads uh, the, the villain now has an opportunity for that redemptive storyline, it opens a whole new door. What would have happened if Luke Skywalker had not surrendered to Vader and had that father and son discussion on the Adat? Yeah. What What would have happened? Because Vader was not inclined to turn until I and 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 maybe I'm wrong about this, but my inclination is that Luke having that one-on-one -on -one moment with him instead of just having that adversarial moment with him, I think made all the difference. Yeah. And so there's, there's kind of a critical crux upon which I would like to pivot, which is that um, we've talked about villains and we've talked about villains at great length, but what makes a villain a monster, right? What is the line over which something would be classified a monster versus a villain and how are both compelling in their unique way? Well, I, I think George Lucas did it. I, I, I hate to say this, but he did it beautifully uh, with Revenge of the Sith. After he has dubbed Darth Vader, he is sent to kill children. You know, this is the most innocent form of life out there. He, he doesn't go out and slaughter a bunch of stormtroopers or clone troopers. Excuse me. He doesn't go out there and slaughter um, the banking clan and, and the, the separatists. To later. The first act to show he is a complete and total monster is he kills children. We, you know, we don't see it, but everything is implied there. And then later we hear that you killed younglings. You know, that, you know, I, I, I really believe more than anything as a society, as a people, we view that as a crossing of the line from a human that's made mistakes to a, a monster. You know, um, we, you know, when you look at it, you know, they did a fantastic job with the movie starting out with the children because we're seeing this demonic entity attacking and killing children. 
if we would have seen that killing adults, I don't think it would have had as strong as power because, you know, adults can fight back. Children are innocent. They can't really fight back that much. And so that really entrenches that image of a monster in our mind. So I think, I I think to answer that question, um, what makes a monster is when, is when a thing assaults innocence and assaults virtue because it's different. There's a difference between, you know, um, opposition, which will attack the defensible, uh, which will attack the capable and which will try to win uh, a struggle. Yeah. But I love that you brought up the the Anakin and Younglings example and the um, and the Pennywise example, because that was about attacking the defenseless yep. and the innocent and the virtuous. It was about destroying that. In fact, now that I as you were talking about that, I was thinking, you know, Palpatine, a master puppeteer who already had control of the clone armies and yeah. several other entities at that point could have sent a large contingent of disposable life forms, mm-hmm. not 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 to be Star Wars racist, but referring to the clones, right? Yeah. Um, could have sent a, a contingent of disposable life forms that were easily replaced to go and slaughter the younglings. But that wasn't the that wasn't the purpose. Correct. It was only a secondary purpose to wipe out the Jedi. The real purpose of sending Anakin was to solidify him on the dark side. It was to yep. make him the servant of the emperor. It was to ruin him so that he could never go back. Correct. That's what Palpatine was thinking. So that's so what then, makes a monster. So then by association, would you put Palpatine into the monster category? He's the real monster. Well, no, he, he definitely is. I mean, he was pulling strings behind. I mean, look at the number of people. I mean, innocent people that were killed throughout that war that he orchestrated. Um, he, I mean, there's all the terror that and stuff, atrocities that happened on Ryloth and multiple other planets across the systems. And that was all orchestrated by him uh, and, and Darth Plagueis, of course. But they, you know, they orchestrated all of this at any time he could have stopped and said, whoa, my master's dead. I don't really need to go through this. But no, he didn't care. Uh, his goal was to become the all-powerful being at no cost. It didn't matter who suffered as long as he reached his goal. And so that's, you know, it, it's one thing to kill innocent and, and, and the virtuous, but at the expense of all else to be put yourself in a position of power above everything, I think that, you know, you go from monster level one to monster level two or three or four or whatever you want to rank it. That really puts you up there. And And he didn't care. He didn't care. Who died? As long as he continued to be in power, if they killed off a Tarkin, who cares? If he kill, even if Vader died, he'd find another apprentice. The only thing that mattered was he was still in power. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, and so basically, what I'm seeing is kind of like this Venn diagram of sorts, right? Where we've got villains can be monsters, monsters yeah. can be villains, but the critical thing that makes you one or the other a villain is i should say one who chooses to turn away from good into evil mm-hmm. and stands in direct opposition to the heroes in their quest to pursue the good that they forsook a monster is one who um 
chooses to purposefully attack, belittle, hurt, intimidate, demean, gain power over the innocent, not merely obtain their own goals through salacious or non-good side means. Yeah. Is that I, kind of directional? And if I if I can weigh in on that just for a minute, uh, mm-hmm. I think the difference, because people will look at... I, I can't get away from this Palpatine Anakin comparison, but but stay with me. Um, the difference, like Anakin did it right. Anakin killed children, um, and he cut his teeth on the women and children of the 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 Sand People of the Tuscan Raiders. Yeah. Um, but uh, the difference between Palpatine and Anakin that ultimately led to redemption versus destruction is that Anakin felt pain, anguish, and even guilt and regret all along the way that he buried under other motivations. Yeah. Palpatine either didn't care or enjoyed it. And and there's that that boundary. When yeah. when you when you cross that line to the point where you genuinely, a hundred percent, not even subconsciously, just don't care about what you're doing damage wise, or even worse, when you drift in onto the side of the of the gamut where you enjoy it. That's where monstrosity starts. It's at that boundary. But because Anakin still felt the pain of what he was doing, he still had that opportunity for redemption. If he didn't have that, he would have been the consummate monster, which is what Palpatine was. Yeah. So then for the two of you, now that we've talked about like what makes a really good villain, right? When you are designing a monster, whether that's for a game that you're running or whether it's for writing a story, what are the critical pieces that you want to put into place in order for a monster to be an effective story tool for your characters? Uh, For me, uh, it's the exact same criteria as the heroes. A good villain, a real villain has a backstory, a real, not a villain, a monster specifically. Excuse me. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's, let's go with monster. Um, If we're talking about monster uh, in the literal sense then uh, I think I think attachment makes the best monster. For example, let's look at Pennywise. Pennywise is a monster, feeds on children. Even the vi- even the adults it victimizes is about corrupting them to hurt children, that sort of thing, right? Um, but Pennywise is ingrained in dairy for several reasons. It also has a backstory, but the 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 reason it's such a compelling monster for the heroes of the story is because that monster has corrupted where those heroes live. It has taken the people those heroes love. So there is attachment between the heroes and the monster. If we're just talking about like, I'm just going to grab something out of the air, but let's say, let's say you have like a, an interdimensional Balrog that shows up um, in the middle of a desert that the heroes are simply traversing that's just an obstacle. That's not a real monster. It is a creature. It's not a monster. A monster is the shadow beast that teleports from closet to closet, eating children in their sleep in the village where the heroes live. So I think that the best monsters come from attachment, meaning to the heroes. No, I agree. There has to be some sort of emotional tie-in. You know, uh, Star Wars, you know, we'll use that as an example. Stormtroopers, they're not the greatest guys in the in the universe, but they're doing what they're told. 
you know, they're being told to do X, Y, Z, so they do it. You know, as we're roaming through, stormtroopers are just kind of there. You you can get a by them. You can, you know, they're they're like the pesky nut town guard. You just deal with them. You know, that's part of life. However, you go into a garbage chute and something pulls one of your companions under the water. You know, now there's that attachment. Where's my Where's my companion? What just did that? Um, now now you have a life or death situation. You have to compete with that. You know, let's move a little bit further down the road. The Rancor, giant imposing creature that eats things. And, you know, Luke is stuck down there. He has no lightsaber. What do you do? Those are really good monsters. Uh, you know, he has some f- attachment. He's got fear. There's jeopardy. If he doesn't get out, he can't save Han and Leia and, and R2 and 3PO and Lando and Chewie. Uh, you know, even Jabba, even though he's not the overall, the overarching villain, he's still a monster in that story because he's had Han hanging on his wall for who know for a, and a number of days, weeks, months, years, whatever. Um, and now he's captured the rest of their friends, uh, and he's given opportunity, but he still denies it. Those are great monster types. The everyday goblins that roam around in your D&D setting those are just they're not really monsters they're considered a monster in the book of course but in my eyes they're just an obstacle yeah it's when you get to the trolls or the ogres something that really poses a threat that can induce that emotional attachment that we're either going to die or someone's going to get injured, or there's some sort of jeopardy tied to it, that's when we get a real solid monster. Because otherwise, it's just, okay, it's the next creature we got to kill. Once we get that, I get some XP. We got to move on. May I phrase the criteria a different way? Sure. Please do. You're the best Mm. at this. A villain is someone who has a motivation that we can understand. A monster is someone who has a motivation we cannot no, yeah, yeah, I like that. I like so that. So you, so your Venn diagram, you've got your obstacles, which is just baddie who's baddie in the way, but we don't really care what their motivation is. You have villains who are obstacles that are in the way, but they have motivations that we understand, right? We may not agree, we may not like, but we can at least wrap our heads around them. Yeah. The monster category is the one in which we're sure they have a motivation or a background or a story or there's something there but we cannot fathom it. Yeah. Anakin killing the sand people. We understand why they killed his mother. Yep. Anakin killing the younglings makes no sense. And in that moment, he has made the transition from villain to monster. Yeah. And at the point at which he's able to overcome those things and then begin to return on, on his trajectory back, he transitions back into the role of villain because he eschews the things that we cannot understand. Yeah. And you briefly, know, it, and briefly at the end of, of Jedi for a short moment, he's a hero. Yeah. You know, and, and that's why, uh, uh, you know, the Nazis have are, are considered monsters and people, you know, our own history. They did something we could not comprehend. We could not understand that, you know, had they just gone to war and attacked other uh, countries to, to try to conquer those. That would have been fine. We wouldn't see them and portray see them as we do currently but because they did what they did to the jews in that man that that just escalated them to a whole another echelon and that's why even today 
you know, that name, it, a lot of people view them as monsters because that was just something beyond our scope. You know, yes, we understand in war people die. There are, you know, collateral damage. Uh, there is casualties that unfortunately happen. But when you're collecting people and sending them to death, uh, yeah, it's just it's it's insurmountable. It, it's un, it's un, we can't understand that. And when we can make our villains be like that, it's even more um, mind-boggling. And then, but it's but it is a good emotional tie-in. You know, our players were like they will get enraged. They will want to go and destroy that kingdom or those monsters because it's like why. Yeah. Why is this happening? We must stop that. And that's precisely the criteria that when I'm when I'm trying to find those key obstacles that propel the story, that help my players take the next step, go down a path that I need them to go down or discover the weapon that I need them to discover or whatever it is, right? Um, monsters fill a particular niche. And, I'm, and again, we're using monsters in the story term for any of you yep. that are just tuning in. Um, but, uh, uh, in, in the story term monsters, right. These are the things that must be overcome because we care and we cannot explain why they are. A villain might be able to be changed, but a monster, no. And so in order for, um, in order for a, a satisfying resolution to a monster, then we either as characters, as players, as storytellers, need to destroy it or seal it away in such a way that it cannot wreak its havoc on the world again, mm -hmm. or we need to move it from the unknown into the known so that we can deal with it inside of the villain sphere. Yeah. So let me ask you this philosophical question then let's look at the, have, I know Dan has seen serenity. Uh, Alton, have you seen serenity? I have twice. Quite and so, that that's that's all the reference you'll need. So in the movie Serenity, there is the assassin, the assassin that is hunting Mal Reynolds and his crew, um, who ultimately uh, spoilers spoilers ultimately kills Book and his enclave of people that he's taking care of. Um, that that character, the assassin, based on our conversation tonight, villain or monster? He's a villain. I. Because he has motivations we can understand. The Reapers, I would see as the monsters. Because we cannot understand them. Uh, yeah, they're insane and crazy, but uh, they are the monsters in that, in that universe. Um, and the assassin is the villain. Because even at the end, there is a little bit of a redemption with him. Yeah. So I, I really feel like he is the villain. Alton, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, to be honest, I'm struggling to remember the entirety of the film. Uh, the reason that I watched it a second time was because I fell asleep the first time. I'm sorry. I know the internet <laughs> just let out a collective gasp of pain. Uh, well, you but, just lost uh, your brown coat, but that's okay. Keep going. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Better um, a brown coat than a brown nose. Yeah, but <laughs> but that but that being said, like um, that many of the many of the fundamental conflicts in uh, Firefly in general, that whole genre, the, the whole uh, franchise rely upon that concept of moving the unknown into the known. Um, it's very similar, funnily enough, in um, Harry Potter. Uh, Harry Potter is fundamentally a mystery book. 
even though we don't really think of it in that terms, that's really what's going on. There are characters who are encountering a problem with mysterious origins. They're trying to figure out the origins of that problem during the process, unmasking the villain, right? And trying to take it on and resolve it in a meaningful way by the end of the episode. Um, and we see that pattern a lot in this, in, in that time frame of media for those two decades, the 90s and 2000s in particular, a lot of that really was the case as, um, and, and maybe that's a reflection of the cultural zeitgeist of the time of, you know, things were generally peaceful, at least in the West, generally prosperous. And, you know, the, the USSR at this point is now gone. And so people are trying to process, okay, if there are still things that are wrong in the world and we've raised for the last 30 years that the communists were clearly the key to all of the evils in the world, where's the evil right um and so i can i can definitely see that the assassin being the primary driver uh, uh, uh driver antagonist is going to by necessity need to be a villain because it needs to be something that can be resolved and understood I think another attribute of what makes a villain versus a monster, and feel free to disagree with me on this, but is the concept of rules and boundaries. Uh, the as you get close, as you get further away from villain and closer to monster, you have fewer rules and fewer boundaries. In other words, there are, there are things that you just don't do as a living entity, even when you're the bad guy. Because remember that, you know, we, we, we've talked about the concept of everyone is the hero of their own story. And the, some of the most compelling villains villains are those who believe they're the heroes. Yeah. And, um, and, for, and to that end, they typically have a system, uh, honor among thieves and all that, right? They typically have a system, they have a set of rules, they have boundaries that they won't cross. And as you get further down the road, where those boundaries are fewer and farther between, uh, or or they simply don't exist. That's when you approach monster. What do you think of that of that sort of subcorollary? No, I, I think that works. Uh, you know, let let's use Harry Potter for example, because Alton brought that up. You know, Voldemort is the villain, but he does have rules and boundaries. His goal, he has a goal, and that with that goal, that creates certain boundaries and rules and things he has to do and follow uh, to accomplish that said goal. The basilisk doesn't have that it's just a creature that just relies on instinct and and so forth it doesn't have any goals it doesn't have any rules or anything other than just bare necessity uh you know move forward a little bit the giant spider you know it's just protecting its young it's still a monster it doesn't really have that goals and that rule set um so i don't don't know that i agree with that as a criteria for our definition fair enough But I I do have another example, but you go ahead. Yeah, so a a great example. um, People categorically hate Dolores Umbridge, right? (laughs) Um, And Which is actually really funny because they love the cook in uh, Nanny McPhee, and that's the same person. Yeah, (laughs) same actress. (laughs) The actress is not the character. I know, I know. Um, You know, one thing that... in writing! (laughs) (laughs) Uh... You know, and and she very clearly, even though she has motivations and sets within which she operates, her desire to rise in power amongst 
the wizarding world, particularly through the ministry, which she has this deep fascination with, even after being presented with the opportunity to just straight up become a death eater, right? Like there's clearly rules and boundaries there, but the thing that makes her monstrous is that in her pursuit of that power, the actions that she takes are not justified relative to the ends that she's trying to achieve. But but with her, we've also established that she is willing to hurt innocence and and the virtuous at no cost. I, I agree, but I don't think that that's necessarily part of her motivation or her her boundaries, her laws, right? Because well, the it, goal... Sorry, uh, I'm sorry. No, you finish your thought. I'm sorry. I was going to say, because we understand what her goal is, and that is not in conflict with what she's doing. I don't know. But again, like this is why we have these conversations, right? Yeah. It helps make us better storytellers and it helps us to understand right. these characters better. This may not be an episode where we get to a solid conclusion at the end of what works and what not no. and what doesn't. And, and, and that's I, what makes I, us monsters. I do believe that there are some areas where that can stray a little bit. She definitely plays on the monster side where she's hurting the children. She's taking stuff away. She's actually physically hurting them in, in various ways. But at the same time, she has a lot. Of, so that puts her on the monster side, but she also does have some tendencies of the villain where she has a drive. She has a goal. Uh, so there are some characters that can kind of navigate back and forth between the two. Well, and maybe yeah. that's maybe that's the thing is that because she shares both of those characteristics, she does sit in the shadow of the Venn diagram. Yeah, yeah, and and I think I think the point that we've sort of tangentially made over this episode is that villainy is a spectrum, and uh, and you can go anywhere from from simple obstacle or or opposition, all the way up through monster. There, yeah. there's this range and it's not just, I mean, we have, we have sort of like three major touch points. We have three major stops in that gamut, but you, there are times where a character is a villain a time at times where that same character is being a monster. And there are even those rare moments where that villain either chooses to simply be an obstacle, maybe even a neutral non-entity or a redempted, a, a redeemed hero. Yeah. So I mean, there's there's sort of like this spectrum. And I do agree with your original postulation, Elton, which is that um, villains, villains have motivation. They have mission. They have vision. They have purpose. And even if we don't agree with that vision, mission or purpose or, or motivation, we understand what that motivation is, not the why, but what. And it's the monsters where we can't comprehend anything about that motivation they do have a motivation we don't understand what it is we can't put our finger on it and it's terrifying because if you don't know what it is you can't stop it yeah well i mean let's let's go back to anakin when he he slays we hear him i slayed the women and children it really didn't affect us because up until that point we've kind of been trained that sand people aren't really you know they're kind of a monster themselves. Yeah, they're not really. We 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 never see them in a kind, loving setting. They're always attacking people. So when that happens, it really doesn't hit us. Of wow, Anakin kind of crossed the line there. But when we see that human boy saying, "Master Anakin," you know, and that lightsaber lights up, there is something inside each of us. It's just like, oh my gosh, he's crossing a line he can't come back from. 
Um, you know, and had we seen a scene where there was a little young, you know, Tuscan Raider that said, why are you, you, why did you kill my father? Why did you kill my mother? That would have changed that scene and we would have seen Anakin as a monster much earlier. I agree. I agree. Um, I, I think for the audience, the difference that you just highlighted was our level of compassion for the victim. Yeah. When we're talking about the Tuscan Raiders mm-hmm. who have only been portrayed as faceless scavengers and um, uh, people who well, well um, humanoids who shoot at pod racers at an event with, yeah. with other women and children, you know, just stuff like that. We don't see it from their side of the story, how they how they you know the sanctity of the desert for them. Um, I, I will bet you to to some degree that the pod track traces through sacred ground for them right that it's an encroachment of what they hold sacred in their lives and uh and and if we talked about that all of a sudden we have this um for lack of a better term this like woke sense of compassion uh for for the tuscan raiders and if we had had that when anakin just simply stated that he had slaughtered an entire tribe of tuscan raiders then um then we would have, I think we would have seen him more monstrously. And I think Padme falls to that same problem. I've always actually like, because I, as you, as you, if you've listened to the show, you know, I'm not a fan of the prequels, but, uh, but I do adore Natalie Portman in general uh, as an actress. But in that scene, like here's Anakin and he's all, I slaughtered them and not just the men, but the women and the children. And her first reaction is, oh, you need a hug. You know, yeah. like, um, <laughs> like, like even she, from another planet who is very compassionate for her own people had like no compassion uh, for the, for the Tuscans, at least none that superseded her care for what Anakin was feeling. And so like, I think the audience had that same problem, but then when we had the humanoid children, well, we had the humans or, or just, just the younglings that were presented as the good guys, we had compassion for them. And then the, and then they used a human specifically for that. Um, Master Skywalker, what are we to do? And then it's just like, and then, and then, and then the way that kid jumped, that's the part that sticks out, right? The way the kid jumped mm. and then you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, we, we felt that because we had compassion for the victims. We didn't have that for the Tuscans. No. Yeah. And, and we don't even have that for Jabba, you know? Oh, uh, like zero, zero. Yeah. Compassion. We have zero compassion for him because it's set up. You know, we see him kill that dancer. We see him drop Luke into the raincore pit. Uh, we just don't care you know at that point you're a monster we need to get rid of you um so even the wampa that we see on hoth you know it's kind of set up that you know when he gets his arm hot you know lopped off who cares he's a monster he ate the tauntaun and hook you know he's gonna eat luke but if we watch them celebrate life day it's a different story yeah yeah (laughs) Um, so so then what i'm hearing i'm hearing that there is a multifaceted approach to this and I'm yes. trying to trying to bring a summary to this because uh, I do think that we've made some really good progress, but I also worry about getting way too far off the rails. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Continue to chase this into oblivion. This is why we keep on the show because that's, that's, he reins us in. <laughs> so uh, your your three primary types of obstacle characters, right? You have just your your generalized obstacles. You have your villains, and you have your monsters. The difference between the three is that an obstacle may or may not have motivations or an understanding for which you care, right? The villain is one for whom you have motivations that 
you can understand. Whether you agree with them or not, you understand them. And a monster is one whose motivations are completely clouded, but their actions are crystal clear. And so in order to be an effective storyteller, whether that's as a GM or as a writer or et cetera, you need to be able to weave that narrative in such a way that as your intended audience, whether that's your characters or your readers or whatever else, encounter the scene, regardless of what the reality is behind the scenes in the moment that they encounter it, if you want them to be an obstacle, don't give them a solid motivation or at least nothing that's strong enough that feels humanized. If you want somebody to be a villain, you need to humanize their actions. Help them understand why your why that character is doing what they are doing. And if you want them to be a monster, you need to very clearly illustrate exactly what they are doing and leave no logical reasons as to why. Yep. And if you are able to help identify those, those key moments in your writing and in your storytelling, you're going to be able to create more compelling characters that will drive your heroes to stronger action and towards a stronger resolution because now there are stakes in what they are doing and there's a reason that they are trying to resolve what they're trying to resolve. When possible, build attachment between your heroes and your, and your opposition, be they villains or monsters, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the more attached the heroes and the players are to the consequences of the actions of monsters and villains, the more monstrous those villains become. Yeah. Well, I mean, Real quickly, just look at Superman and Lex Luthor. There is a vicious attachment there that you can see in almost every interaction. There is tension. There is angst. Uh, you see it with Batman and Joker as well. There is tension there. There is angst. There is an attachment between the two. They have done this dance many, many times, and they continue to encounter one another. One wins one time. One wins the next. But they still continue that dance until ultimately one is going to have to win. Um, but there is that attachment that any time, you know, let, let, let's use Batman, uh, for example. Every time that bat signal goes up and there is a report about the Joker, it doesn't matter what he's doing, he's out the door. Yeah, and, and the same thing with Superman. Oh, Lex Luthor's doing such and such. <laughs> you know, if something happens, he immediately thinks, oh, this is, Lex is doing this. Whether he is or not, that's the first place he goes. So uh, that attachment is definitely key. Love it. All right, folks. Well, we've talked your ear off. Uh, we definitely can go on and on and on. Uh, hopefully, uh, we've gone over some stuff that will help improve your writing, help improve your, your adventures, your game mechanics. Uh, we love talking about this, as you can clearly see. Um, Seriously, we could do multiple shows on all of this stuff we love talking about. So there's some some exciting stuff uh, coming up. If you haven't heard the Kroll episode, definitely go. Go listen to it. Uh, we are thinking of some other amazing movies out there that we will be uh, recapping. Now, the best part about this is some of these Alton hasn't seen before. And so this is going to be 90% get- of these are movies he hasn't seen before. Because we will get his his, his two cents in um this is fun this is fun and and because you know you're getting all the perspectives you're getting the 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 fans of the show but you're also getting someone that has never seen the show in his opinion which i i i think is wonderful uh even if you don't 
like the movie, that's okay because we're getting an outside perspective because more, more likely not that we're looking at it from nostalgia. We're looking at it from, you know, fanboy place and our vision, our uh, attitude towards that is, is tinted. Let's just admit it. Um, well, and, and even with that, like there's a lot of value in being able to see something for what it is, but be able yeah. to glean the good and glean the passion from the people around you. Yeah. Uh, Krebs and I have started working on some designs around Kroll that uh, we're excited to reveal at some future unknown date. And because I will not tell you my motivations, I am now a monster. There you go. <laughs> just just please the- don't tell me you're not trying to make a replica uh, of the glade then everything is going to just go downhill from there (laughs) right yeah the best part of any fandom is sharing sharing that fandom that's the best part and thank you for sharing yours with us yes again uh reach out to us go you can email us at info at dungeoncrawlersradio.com or just go to dungeoncrawlersradio.com click on click on us find us on facebook twitter instagram let us know what you'd like us to talk about it. Let us know your opinions if we're just way off base on monsters, villains, and such forth, so forth. Or you're just like, wow, this really helped my game and helped me build better monsters and villains. We want to hear that. We want to, and not only that, we'll give you a shout out. We'll definitely, you know, we're going to say, you know, Willie Smith uh, emailed in to, to say about this, and we'll give you a shout out so you could actually be a part of the next episode. Uh, so, With that said, we're out of here, and we'll catch you next time. If you must take away two things, the first is tell your story, whatever may come. And always remember to be epic and don't suck. Remember, the Force will be with you.